My name is Beth Murray. I get to um, lead you all in the scripture reading this morning. It is from Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are glad as always that you're here. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are here with us for the first time, thanks so much. We're, we're glad to have you. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Well, this week we're beginning a series looking at the life of Joseph. And if you were with us uh, last fall, you may remember that we took an in-depth look at the lives of the the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, We looked at Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And one of the things that we discovered as we were looking at the lives of those three men uh, was that their lives really were just a canvas upon which an infallible God was going to paint a masterpiece. These men inherently were men that were fallen, they were suffering, they went through difficulty, they went through doubt, they were deceitful, they were dishonest, they were defrauding, they were disenchanted. These were men who by any external measure should not have received the grace that was shown to them as we all are, and yet God saw fit in his goodness, in his grace, in his tenderness to use these men, to bless them, to bring through them the line of redemption ultimately in Jesus Christ and, and symbolically represented in the life of Joseph. Uh, this, is, this is a theme that we see repeat itself all throughout scripture, the redemption of God in the lives of broken people. We witnessed as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, went through occasional moments of, of triumph and faith, but far more often what we witnessed were their failures and their disappointments. 
And through all of that, the character who, who leapt off the page that we learned the most about was God himself, that his invisible hand of blessing faithfully delivered and led these fearful men. And as we come into Genesis 37 this morning, what we find is really a handoff in the story. As we begin looking at the life of Joseph, we really have to start by looking again at the tail end of the life of Jacob. There's a handoff that happens between the two, and what happens in these verses really sets the table for everything that's going to happen in Joseph's life going forward. And so as we come to Genesis 37, the author of this text reintroduces us to Jacob, and we find the old deceiver, as he was known, who had hoodwinked his brother, who had experienced the heartache of his own father's favoritism towards his brother, now beginning to interact with his own children. And as we learned through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and and Isaac's interaction with Jacob, what we found was this repeating narrative of dysfunction in their family. That the sins and the struggles of the father were often the same sins and struggles of the sons. And we find the same thing here as we dive into the lives of Jacob and Joseph. So look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. That reference to father there is likely Abraham, the forefather of the family, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because Joseph was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now notice where this entire story starts, because we don't want to miss the hand of God in all of this. Jacob finds himself in the land of Canaan. He's in the land of promise. He's in the place that God had promised his grandfather, Abraham, and ultimately then delivered to him. He'd been experiencing the blessings of God that had been promised to his forefathers despite the sin and the deception that marked his life. God has graciously blessed Jacob and his family. And if you remember Jacob's life, it was just marked from the very first moments by deceit. As he grew into young adulthood, he he found himself falling in love with a young woman named Rachel. He began to immediately set all of his hope and all of his worth in her. So much so that he labors for 14 years working for her father in order to gain her hand in marriage. Finally, they're married. They start their life together. Jacob's never been happier He loves Rachel dearly, and they tried for years to have children. Jacob, in the interim, had had 11 other children from other women, but he desperately wanted to have a child with Rachel. And after the 14 years of ambition, trying to gain the hand of his wife, this now becomes his new motivation. I want to have a child with Rachel. And they plead with God for years until finally, in their old age, as this text says, God miraculously grants their request, much as God had done for his grandfather, Abraham. And so Rachel gives birth to this boy. They name him Joseph. His name literally means God will add. They had said, God, will you add to our family? 
in Genesis chapter 32, and here in this text, we're introduced to Joseph. His name literally means God will add. And, and if you look at that name and how else it's used in the history of Israel, what you find is that it's the promise that God adds his blessing, he adds destiny, he adds purpose and meaning to the lives of those who belong to him. And so imagine now the joy of these two parents. This is all they've wanted for years. And they love Joseph and they pour their lives out for Joseph and they invest in Joseph and they enjoy his company and they train him as parents do. And then they get blessed again with a second child named Benjamin. But unfortunately, during the birth, Rachel dies. And Jacob finds himself in this position of having these two boys upon whom he now places all of the love and all of the expectation and all of the hope and all of the purpose that he had originally found in Rachel. He makes them his everything. And Joseph in particular becomes the apple of his eye. Joseph gets all the attention and all the affection of his elderly father and it is clear to all of his siblings. They didn't miss this for a moment. And anybody with a large family, to some extent or another, can kind, of, can kind of envision how this happens. I mean, the oldest child gets all of mom and dad's best efforts at intensive training and, and child rearing. And by the, t- by the time child number four or five or 12, in the case of Jacob, rolls around, a lot of the rules and the restrictions have gone out the window. The older children are resentful of the younger children and how easy they have it. I know for my older siblings, they make this charge all the time about how easy my life was, I'm the youngest of six, about how easy my life was as compared to theirs. And to listen to them talk, you would think they were raised in a prison camp. The way they talk about the things that I got away with and how hard their life was and how easy I have it and how I'm the favorite and how great I am and all those kinds of things that they say about me. And unfortunately, I'm put in the position of having to remind them that jealousy is not not a good look for them. But you can imagine how it must have felt for Joseph's brothers who had different moms from him and were substantially older than him to grow up with this clear sense that their father loved him more. It creates resentment. And that feeling, as we find out in this text, is not helped by Joseph's actions. Like any spoiled younger sibling, it takes him a long time to figure out why his brothers are actually irritated with him. And so he goes out one day, according to this text, to see what his brothers are doing. His father had sent him out there. It said that he was out pasturing the flock with his family, with his brothers. And other texts actually says that he was shepherding. And the word that's translated there is actually the word for chief shepherd. But there's actually a possibility that Joseph, at this young age of 17, was put in charge of all of his brothers. Imagine how that must feel if you're his 11 older siblings who are all capable and probably more capable in their own eyes than their younger sibling. But here he comes out one day to see what's going on, and he is shocked to learn that they were up to all sorts of shenanigans about which their father knew nothing. And so he immediately feels that it's his responsibility to go back and inform his dad, you know, dad, these other boys of yours, they're just not doing the things that they ought to be doing. They're pulling hijinks and they're goofing around and they're not doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. And he gives his father this bad report, according to verse 2. And that translation of the word bad report is interesting in and of itself because what you find is that some scholars have pointed out that the word bad report, nearly every other time it is used in the Old Testament, is referencing a report that is false. 
In other words, it is possible, though it's not clear in this text, it is possible that the charge Joseph comes back with to give his father is actually one that isn't true, or at least is exaggerated. And so Jacob's response to this is not to correct his son, it's not to call his son a tattletale, it's not to tell him to calm down, but instead his response is to give him an extravagant gift and a position of further authority over his brothers. Jacob gives his son, according to this text, a coat of many colors. Now, if you were with us on Palm Sunday, Dave talked about the idea that in this era, in this time, now granted this is several thousand years before uh, Palm Sunday, but at this time to have a coat was an extravagancy. You probably only had one. It was the most expensive article of clothing that you had. It had to be durable. It had to hold up to the weather conditions. It had to last you a long time. And so not only does Jacob give Joseph this coat, but he gives him a coat of many colors. Now, this is before all kinds of modern textile production. To do this meant that somebody had to take the time to physically weave together these fabrics, to dye the fabrics, to get all kinds of different fabric and put them together. And it meant that this coat was extravagant on every level, an incredibly expensive piece of clothing. But perhaps even more significantly than the physical beauty and the expense of this coat was what it represented. Because we're given a clue into the extravagance of this in the word that's translated in our Bible's coat, or maybe in your translation, robe. And the Hebrew word for that is literally long-sleeved robe. And according to several scholars, and I'm going to quote this, it is suspected that there was a practice of binding money or deeds inside the sleeves of garments. A long-sleeved garment would thus be one that held a great deal of money or property rights. In other words, these brothers are not just jealous of Joseph because of his style and the expense of his clothing, but because it likely indicated that Jacob was intending to make Joseph, not one of the older sons, the heir to his fortune. And every time they saw Joseph walk by wearing that coat, what they saw was not just the favored son, not just the beloved son, not just the son who could do no wrong, not just the son who had the special relationship with the father, not even just the son who had the nice coat. What they saw was the potential of their future fortune, their prominence, their place in society and in their family going to a brother who they could not stand. And so when you begin to look at this story through the lens of the brothers, their hatred and their attitude towards them actually begins to make a little more sense. And so not only did Jacob indicate his love by giving Joseph this coat, but we also find out in verse 14, he puts Joseph into a position of authority over his brothers explicitly. So notice then the predictable way that this begins to play out. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. The brothers were so put off by Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph and by Joseph's actions towards them that it says that they could not speak peacefully to him. And the indication of that text is that it's almost as if their rage, their anger was out of their control. That even try as they might to put on a pleasant face and exchange pleasantries with their younger brother, it was almost beyond their remit to do so. They could not interact with him peacefully. They were so filled with anger. 
In other words, and this is the point practically that I don't think we should miss in this handoff between Jacob and Joseph, Jacob's favoritism had put Joseph in a position to fail relationally with his brothers. Now, that's not to say that the brothers, or even Joseph himself, as we'll talk about in a moment, didn't have culpability. Clearly, they did. But Jacob had inadvertently and ironically stacked the deck against his favored son. By showing favoritism for his son, he had put his son in a position where he could not win with his own family. Jacob did for his son the very thing that he resented his own father for doing, showing favoritism. And as it occurred to me, this, as I was reading this this week, it occurred to me the capacity that we have for emulating and mimicking the very same behaviors of our parents that we once resented is just unreal. I remember the first time that I actually realized I was turning into my parents. It was when I was having a conversation with my son. I was responding to his inquiry about why he needed to obey me. And after giving explanations to a child, which I have since learned is not always the smartest thing to do, after giving explanations as to why he should obey me, in exasperation, I resorted to saying, you have to do it because I said so. And I can't tell you the number of times I had heard that same phrase in my life, so much so that when I said it, I nearly turned around to see if my own dad had entered into the room. I was so surprised to hear those words coming out of my mouth. But of course, now as a parent, I I get that instinct. I understand that instinct because I shouldn't have to explain to my kids why I'm allowed to eat ice cream in the living room. And when they ask me, I have actually unapologetically told them, well, when you're the dad, you can eat ice cream wherever you want. But in a far more serious sense in this text, the truth is that our family of origin, the family from which you come, the experiences that you have, the personalities that you encounter, the stresses, the anxieties, the responses to stimulus that you experienced growing up, the home you grew up in, the interactions that we witnessed, both good and bad, shape our thoughts, our patterns, and our behaviors far more than we would ever assume. We love to think of ourselves as independently-minded people, that we view the facts, that we view the evidence, that we can, can surmise a situation, and that then we make a response to it. But the truth of the matter is there's so much of who we are that is just wired into us either by birth or through our experience. We are products of our environment to a large extent. The values that we hold, the things that we care about, the way that we respond, and if nothing else, seeing this repeated pattern of favoritism play out in the lives of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob ought to make all of us take a beat and say, what are the experiences of my life that have been so constant and so formative that they've created habitual behaviors? In other words, what are the actions, attitudes, and behaviors that I don't even think about? When I'm faced with a stressful situation at work, when my kids are annoying me, when I get into a fight with my spouse, when things aren't going well and I respond a particular way, either by maybe shutting down or lashing out or however it is that you respond, what are those things that actually drive us, born of our experience, born of our family, that make us who we are? In other words, I think there's an implicit invitation in this text to be curious about who it is that God has created us to be. To think about which assumptions and behaviors we mimic, or likewise, 
the behaviors and the, and the assumptions that we run from simply because our parents or some other influential person in our life thought, believed, or acted that way. But for most of us, we approach our own lives and our own behaviors and experiences and attitudes with, with complete incuriosity. And if we don't interrogate those inclinations, we are bound to repeat those same unhealthy or destructive patterns in our own lives. And that is exactly what Jacob did. See, the truth is that Jacob likely knew better than to play favorites with his sons. He knew that because he had experienced firsthand the pain of not being the favorite. And he had experienced the destruction that was caused by being his mother's favorite. If anyone was in a position in all of Scripture to understand the danger of what it was that he did with his own sons, it was him. But as one scholar quipped, knowing something is bad and avoiding doing that something is not high on a sinner's list of noteworthy moral achievements. Our problems, generally speaking, our problem, rather, generally speaking, is not ignorance of shoulds, musts, and oughts, but the refusal to do what would actually be best for ourselves and everyone else concerned. In other words, to some extent or another, Jacob probably recognized that what he was doing wasn't helpful, but he just didn't care enough to do anything about it. Because he was looking to his son to be something in his life that his son could never be. The fulfillment of his hope, the place of his affection. He was looking for his son to be his safety, to be his own meaning. And in doing so, he put a weight on his son and put a burden on his other sons that none of them could possibly bear. Now, how does this play out then in Joseph's life? Notice how Joseph responds to all of this. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I'll just stop for a moment. Joseph, as amazing a man as he's going to be, and he is an incredible man, for all sorts of reasons, he lacks, at the very least, wisdom and tact as he interacts with his brothers. Because of his favored position given to him by his father, he has no comprehension of the weight and the effect of his words. Or, alternatively, he does recognize how serious the weight of his words are going to be in the lives of his brothers, and it's exactly why he shares the dream. But either way, there is a lack of discernment and understanding in Joseph's heart. Now, what does he say to them? Verse 6, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, what's happening in this text? Joseph comes, he describes this dream. It's a very straightforward one. It's not hard to interpret. It doesn't take a a particularly deep level of understanding to figure out what's going on in this text. He comes to them and says, all of us, were out in the field. We're all binding these sheaves. We're taking all, all of our bounty. We're wrapping it up. We're binding it together. And as we stepped away from those sheaves, in an odd turn of events, all of your sheaves happened to bow down to mine. And the brothers immediately understood what it was that he was implying. Understand that in this culture, dreams 
are not just viewed as the result of poor late-night easing decisions. They were recognized as being given by God. They were given explicitly for a very real purpose to the dreamer. So as Joseph is telling the story, his family isn't just hearing with mild amusement as we might or, or, or even a claim of arrogance what it was that happened in this story. They recognized what was actually happening on a spiritual level in Joseph's dream. That Joseph had just encountered a vision of what was to come. And they hated him for it. And notice also what it says. It says they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. There's a sense in which these brothers at this point may have been resentful towards God himself for giving him the dream. Who is this God? This God that we worship, this God that we proclaim that we love, this God who our Father has raised us to worship, who gives a dream to the youngest and most insignificant one of us an indication that he is somehow going to have significance in our family and maybe even potentially rule over us. They hated him for his dreams, and they hated him for his words. And whether that's, an, whether that's a reference to the fact that he even told them the story or the way that he communicated the story, we're not entirely sure. But whatever it was, they didn't appreciate it. And it's the reason they responded the way that they did ultimately in verse 11. His brothers, it says in verse 11, were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. His brothers heard the declaration that God himself was going to put Joseph in a position to have rule and significance in his family's lives, and they were jealous of him because of it. Now, at this point, it's worth considering what it was that Joseph was doing in sharing this dream with them. Because the dream, remember, was given to him by God. It was a good thing that he was given this dream, not a bad thing. And it was a grace from God to Joseph to give him this glimpse of the future. And as we'll get into in the coming weeks, undoubtedly, as Joseph goes through all of the trials and difficulty and suffering and heartache and question that he's going to walk through, this dream must have come back in his mind over and over and over again as an assurance of God's intention of provision and purpose for his life. So it is a good thing, not a bad thing, that God gave him this vision But the real question is, why did he approach sharing this story the way that he did? And this is where we do get into a little bit of supposition. Many commentators, if you look at their view of this text, they just view Joseph as being naive or or potentially even honorable in sharing the dream. That he just wanted his family to know. And I suppose that that's possible. But I suspect, and this is just my opinion, I suspect that what we're seeing here is actually Joseph growing arrogant. He's experienced the favor. He's been told since the moment he was born that he's the best of the family, if not explicitly, at least implicitly through the actions of his parents and ultimately after Rachel's death, the actions of his father. And so perhaps there was something within Joseph that kind of wanted to flaunt his position, wanted to remind his brothers who he was. And now, not only does my my father think that I'm great, but God himself is going to use me in this really amazing way. In other words, perhaps Joseph had been spoiled by his father to such an extent that he began to not care about his family, to not care how they might receive the news or what it would do to his relationships. He seems to be growing arrogant and maybe even malicious toward his brothers. Now again, that's speculation. But the reason that I have that speculation is because what we're told is that his brother's hatred toward him grew even deeper 
even deeper than the fact that they could not interact with him peacefully. Their hatred now burrows deeper, and it doesn't curb Joseph's behavior or speech at all. In fact, he doubles down when he has a second dream. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream, which if you want to irritate your older brothers, start by saying the word behold. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Notice that's 11 stars, right? These are his 11 brothers. He's not including Benjamin in this. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers, his brothers' hatred grew into jealousy because they realized in this moment that their fears about Joseph's prominence in the family was going to be realized. Their sense of inferiority was being constantly affirmed by everything it was that Joseph said. And now in this moment, they're saying as if it's not bad enough that our father loves Joseph more. Now God is going to use him in this way. And even Jacob at this point feels the need to correct his favorite son. Are you saying that I'm going to bow down and worship you? As we come to the end of this text, the question that might come to mind for us is what in the world does this introduction to Joseph's story have to do with me? And for me, the, the kind of encapsulation came, of, came from a quote that I read this week from an Old Testament theologian writing on this text, and here's what he said, I want you to hear it. Sinners in this text, sinners are doing what sinners do best. They are messing everything up. And God is doing what God does best. He is weaving events replete with hatred and horror and a vestige of hope into a finished product of redemption that we could never have foreseen. In other words, everything that's going on in this text, all of this family dysfunction, all of the relational breakdown, all of the heartache and all of the hard feelings and all of the hatred that was building up so much in their brother's life that they were about to do something that is so horrific we can hardly imagine it in the text that we're going to look at next week. All of this is not outside of God's control. In the words of this author, God is going to weave the broken decisions and the hatred and the attitudes of all of these people involved into something that is so beautiful and redemptive we can't even imagine how it could have turned out for their good. And that theme is going to be important for us to keep in mind as we move our way through the story because the experience of Jacob and Joseph is replete with lessons, practical ones and deeply spiritual ones. For Joseph, what he was about to experience, hard as it was, may have been God saving him from the entitled, uncaring future toward which he was heading. Had Joseph not begun to experience what he's about to experience in the coming chapters, he may have become just one more cautionary tale of family dysfunction. But God, in his grace, is going to take Joseph on a journey of discovery and humility and forgiveness. And he's going to put him in a position to forgive and redeem the very family that hated him. 
The story teaches us that despite the severity of the mistakes that we make, God has a unique ability to restore us. And for me, this was the thing that I walked away so encouraged with after looking at this text, because as a dad myself, I take great comfort in the fact that God can redeem even my biggest mistakes. I want to live in a way that makes my children all feel loved and valued and sets an example that they can emulate, but the truth is that in just the short time that I've been a father, just coming up on nine years, I've been overwhelmed with the extent of my own shortcomings and missteps. And there have been times where I've just said, God, how, how do you fix what I break? How can good come of my missteps? I have regrets about things that I've done and failed to do. I have frustrations with myself about ways that I've responded. But the reminder from this text is that in that moment of question, what my kids need more than a dad who has it all together is a dad who is aware of his own sin. And because of it is all the more dependent on God. In other words, my kids don't need a perfect dad. What they need is a dad who is dependent on a perfect heavenly father. And likewise, there's a lesson to be learned from Joseph's brothers. Because when they heard these dreams, they couldn't get past their own anger and their own fear. They couldn't get past the anger that in their estimation, Joseph was going to get something that he didn't deserve and fear that his prominence was going to lead to their loss. But unbeknownst to them, God was going to use even a situation that they didn't like for their own benefit. And how often in our lives do we walk through the unknown and the unwanted circumstances, beginning to doubt God's ability or his goodness? We begin to presume that if God were good or if God was in control, things would begin to play out as we would want and expect. And yet God was going to use undesirable circumstances to bring blessing and provision into these lives, into the very lives of the men who despised God for the dreams that he gave his brother, that they gave, that rather that he gave uh, their brother, and despised that brother for the words that he had spoken. See, when we're gripped by fear or anger, we inevitably resort to one of two options. We either try to control and manipulate to get what we want, which is what these brothers tried to do, or we are wracked by anxiety of what we can't control. But had these brothers been able to push through their fears, to push rather their fears forward and entrust them to God, they might have been spared the difficulty of learning this lesson in an incredibly hard way. As Chad Bird wrote, in the hardships of life, as well as in our deepest woes, only in hindsight do we realize the hidden hand of God at work in them. He is not making us stronger, but showing us how weak we are in ourselves, that we might live solely in the strength that Christ provides. In other words, the purpose of difficulties in our lives is not just to strengthen us, though it certainly may have that effect. And it's not just to imbue us with character, like many of us grew up hearing. Why do I have to do this difficult thing? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to study hard? Why do I have to work hard? It builds character. 
Now, God's answer is entirely different. The reason we go through difficult things is for us to realize how inherently weak we are and how wonderfully strong God is so that we can begin to depend on him. And all of that comes through Christ's provision alone. See, Jesus was the favorite son with a perfect, unbroken relationship with a perfect heavenly father. And Joseph was, or rather Jesus, was likewise betrayed by those who were closest to him. Abandoned and rejected, denied and cursed. And all of that led Jesus to a cross where ultimately he would be abandoned by that very God himself. But he did that so that through the work of Jesus Christ, you and I could have access to the strength and the love and the grace of the Father. So that we could encounter difficulty and doubts and questions and worries and anxieties and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even what people intend for evil, God intends for good. That he can restore and he can weave together the circumstances of our life in such a way to bring us ultimate joy and to bring him glory. To draw us closer to himself. And so the invitation for us as we close out with this text this morning is to realize and to hear the call of a God who says, even though you're going through what you can't understand, for what you wouldn't desire, and for what you would change in a heartbeat if you could, I am working something in and through you that is for your own benefit, for your ultimate pleasure, and for your relationship with me. That we have a good and strong Father who loves us that much and has not abandoned us in our moment of need. So press in to a Father who can handle the things that you can't, who can hear your anxieties, who can hear your worries, who can hear your doubts, and who can even see your attempts to control and manipulate, and who graciously can pull your hands off the controls of your own life so that he can weave in blessing and joy and meaning in ways that we could not expect. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the example of this text. And realizing once again that even in, even in the life of someone as incredible as Joseph, and he really was an incredible man, the goal is not to find our meaning, our purpose, or our example in Joseph. Though there are lessons to be learned from his life, the realization is that in everything we experience, your hand is at work. That you are in control and that you care about us. That like any loving father, you desire good things for your children, but unlike any earthly father, you have the ability to actually bring those things to bear in their lives, often through ways that we would least expect, and in the moment at least, probably not desire. And so God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to rely on you, to learn the lessons of the life that we've lived and experienced, the homes in which we grew up, the idols that we've constructed, and in all of that, God, to realize that only you can bring about satisfaction and joy. 
So God, do in us this morning what only you're able to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.